Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am so looking forward to today. Today is going to be a wonderful show. Rob Blue is going to be joining me in just a minute. And Dr. Greg Borgon will be as well on the program in the first hour. And then the second hour, Jeff Verdorn is going to continue his study on end times. So that's what's ahead for today. Rob Blue is my Washington, D.C. correspondent. I always look forward to chatting with him on Tuesdays. He's also the editor of the Daily, executive editor of the Daily Signal. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be with you. Let me start by saying, today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. Of course, that's Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) A controversial figure these days. Uh, Six six of his books will will no longer be printed. Uh, He is the latest... uh, uh, victim of cancel culture, I, I suppose you shall say. And um, as as somebody who who you know reads Dr. Seuss's books to to my children, uh, it was it came as quite a surprise. Um, but uh, but perhaps that's uh, my insensitivity, Bill. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, President Obama in 2016 had a proclamation described Seuss as one of the America's revered wordsmiths who used his incredible talent to instill in his most impressionable readers. Universal values we all hold dear. That's President Obama. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> think how much has changed in just uh, just five years. Uh, it is uh, just another example, I think, that uh, that as people go back and, and reflect upon, uh, you know, some earlier writings that were obviously done at a different different time. Uh, you know, they are applying today's standards, and I think that you know this is most this is particularly problematic when it comes to to U.S. history and trying to erase things that um, that I think we could probably learn from and we're, we're better off talking about and having conversations as opposed to trying to to wipe the history books clean or, or in some cases rewriting history entirely as the New York Times tried to do when they said that uh, the country wasn't actually founded in 1776 but 1619 and uh, and it took a big campaign on the part of a lot of people who were historians and others who pushed back on the New York Times, and they eventually admitted that uh, they were wrong to do so. But yeah, I, uh, you know, Bill, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where I think it starts uh, in the home, uh, in so many cases, in terms of having, you know, conversations with your kids. And when you have schools or governments or, or other public officials trying to, to force feed this to us, um, you know, that's where that's where we run into problems. It's it's you know, when you read that uh, statement from Obama, it kind of reminded me of, of when uh, when it, then President Obama uh, first took office. You know, he was somebody who was uh, expressed skepticism of, of gay marriage and then eventually uh, changed his opinion on that. And, uh, you know, people treated him with respect and, mm-hmm. and kindness, I mean, th- throughout that. Uh, but they don't. Uh, now, books are being banned from Dr. Susan's the only one or uh, my former colleague, Ryan Anderson, who wrote a book oh, yes. uh, when Harry becomes Sally. Uh, the book was removed from Amazon. Uh, you no longer can purchase it from that platform. 
And Ryan, who's now president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, um, uh, no longer has that as, as a way to, uh, to get his message out. Uh, a book, by the way, that I should add that has helped a lot of people who are struggling with transgenderism uh, figure out some answers that they might not see in other sources. Uh, it's actually been a, a very helpful book for him. But we know that this is, uh, this is just the beginning. Uh, mm -hmm. We're, we're going to confront more of these challenges with censorship as time goes on. Rob, comment on these two conflicting ideas where kids would be allowed to get hormone treatments without parental control but they don't want them reading Dr. Seuss. I, I it just, I, I don't, I, I don't understand it. Um, in, in fact, we, we've seen a move afoot in, in more places, including uh, the Daily Signal story today, an interview with Senator Mike Lee about how the DC mayor is trying to cut parents out of the process of, um, of making decisions about giving the COVID vaccine to, to chill to their children. Uh, I mean, I, I, so yes, there's, there's been a, a move afoot up on the, uh, part of the left for, for, you know, years, decades now um, to, to restrict the, the role of parents in terms of making some of these decisions. And one of the, the biggest ones that we've warned about is, uh, is doctors who are advising uh, giving, uh, giving puberty blockers or, or giving them therapy um, and not really including parents in, in that conversation or in some cases uh, excluding them uh, purposefully. So, Bill, it's uh, it's one of the reasons why we featured videos from people like Dr. Michelle Cretella, mm -hmm. uh, who's a pediatrician, or Walt Heyer, who um, who used to be transgender, but uh, but decided that that was a, a dangerous lifestyle that he did not want to pursue. Both of those videos were banned by YouTube when they were giving their real life testimony, this that of the opinion of a doctor and somebody who lived that lifestyle. And so, I I don't understand it why there's such a move afoot to um, to limit that that type of information and you make it you know your comparison i mean i just <laughs> i i don't understand um why some people think it's okay uh to provide that information but not let us read dr seuss's books mm -hmm. rob is the economy rebounding and is the covid relief bill targeting the neediest well, there's even some Democrats, Bill, who believe that that COVID relief bill is not. In fact, uh, President Joe Biden had to have a meeting with some of the moderates in his his own party uh, to try to convince them that they should come on board and support the bill. As as your listeners know, there is no room for for uh, for error in the Senate uh, when it comes to the Democrats and their ability to pass this. They have exactly 50 senators and Republicans have 50 as well. So they cannot afford to lose a single vote because Republicans probably are going to be opposed to the bill, just as they were on the House side, because they were cut out of all negotiations. They were not included in, in that process at all. They, um, they were not really given the opportunity to make amendments, all of those things that would normally go into the legislative process. Um, so if if a John Tester of Montana or a Joe Manchin of West Virginia or, or uh, others uh, decide that they can't support the bill for, for whatever reason, uh, that means that they're not going to have the votes to pass it. And you're exactly right. Some of those senators have raised the question about whether or not the money that's going, the direct payments that are going to the American people are hitting the households who are most in need and whether or not there should be tighter income limitations around it. Uh, there are some people uh, who have done very well during this pandemic because they've been entrepreneurial and may have found other ways to uh, uh, to make a, a profitable living. Uh, and and I think that if the government's going to provide support, uh, you know, we'd obviously want it to be the most targeted as possible. Mm -hmm. And do you feel, Rob, that the economy is starting to come back? I do think that it is, uh, Bill. And I, I, I'll tell you, um, 
you know, hearing from some of the governors in in states who, uh, particularly states that have have been successful in distributing the vaccine, I think that they are starting to uh, to make some changes. In fact, just today, Texas announced that it was lifting its restrictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is obviously a move that's going to be controversial because the CDC just came out and said that states should not uh, prematurely do this. Uh, I think many people will think that Texas is probably moving a little bit too swift. But uh, but that's Texas's decision to make. We've said from the very beginning, a year ago, when we created our National Coronavirus Recovery Commission, I remember you and I talked a lot about local decision making being the best decision making. Oftentimes, uh, it's the local jurisdictions, not even the state, that will have the best and most accurate information. And those are the jurisdictions that uh, that should be in control and and helping to reopen our our communities. And and I think the result is that yes, you're starting to see the economy picked up, but there's still some sectors and certain certainly a lot of people people out there who are still hurting and need help. Rob, comment if you would on the school reopening and start with the Bluey household. Yes, well, we're getting closer uh, in in Northern Virginia. Uh, it's uh, it's one of those states that has um, has moved to a hybrid model. So some students are already back in school, uh, and every week uh, they're they're getting closer. Um, now the, the Bluey kids, the the two, the two boys in <laughs> elementary school, mm-hmm. will uh, will not be back for um, for another two weeks. Uh, okay. It'll be March sixteenth. So uh, I can give you a full report on that, on that show. But uh, they're excited. I can tell you that much. And. Uh, we've been in communication with their teachers, and I think the teachers who've all been vaccinated now, or have at least had the opportunity to be, to be vaccinated in Virginia, are are excited as well. I think that um, it's obviously created challenges. I mean, I, I know in talking to to the teachers that uh, they're not able to evaluate and give uh, you know give that kind of one on one instructions in a, in a virtual setting that they typically would in a in a in person setting. So even when the kids go back, it'll only be for two days a week. And uh, and that's a good start, but I think that we probably need to get them back in the fall uh, for a full five days. And, uh, and I think being around other children, being in that social environment, is uh, is one of the most important things. I know from my standpoint, I miss it, and uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to the hopefully the D.C. mayor lifting some of her uh, more burdensome restrictions so that uh, we can we can start to do that as well at uh, at the Daily Signal. Okay, Rob, where are we today, March second, with the vaccine rollout? We're it's you know it's different by state bill is the best way I can put it. So depending on where your listeners are today, uh, they may have a completely different experience. I I can tell you that some states have um, have moved very aggressively. They've not encountered the kind of technological uh, challenges or, or distribution challenges that others have. But uh, but overall, the numbers are improving, and that's that's a good sign. I mean, I think you're also seeing that the, the number of, of cases, the number of deaths, uh, the number of people who are getting sick. Um, those are also dropping. So, I mean, it is uh, it is a good situation, but it's one that I think uh, many Americans are going to be waiting still several months. Uh, I think it was really important to target those populations that uh, that need it. Um, First, uh, those would be you know those frontline workers. Those would be those who have maybe pre-existing conditions or, or who are older. But um, but Bill, uh, you know, I think in my case, I'm probably going to be if, if Vice President, if President, sorry, if President Biden says that you know we're all going to have the opportunity to get it by July, I think I'll probably be on July 29th or something. You know, where where, mm-hmm. where I fall in line, but. Um, but you know, it's uh, it's important. I think that we all uh, we all do, do continue to do our part, and uh, and people are still getting sick. I, I I've talked to individuals who um, 
who, are, who you know, it, it's not that it's gone away. I know that sports stadiums are starting to reopen, mm-hmm. and I think those are all positive signs. I, my, my beloved Pittsburgh Penguins will welcome fans back tonight. Yeah, um, but on the same on the same day, you know, Sidney Crosby, our star, uh, is now being withheld from COVID protocol. Yeah. So I mean, what a contrast! Even the even the you know biggest athletes, uh, you know, are, are still confronting these challenges. So I, I know ordinary people are as well. Yeah. All right, Rob, let me take a little break. Rob Bluey is my guest, and we will uh, be back in 90 seconds. happy music that is rob bluey's walk-up music he's the executive editor at the daily signal and my washington dc correspondent rob when we were talking about the uh the covid19 bill which is looking roughly at 1.9 trillion it looks like it includes a 40 billion dollar down payment on the president's plan to build on obamacare that's right. Uh, it certainly does. There's a lot of we could probably spend your entire show today talking about everything that's in this one point nine trillion dollar bill. In fact, you know, it's it's one of those things that I don't think people really truly understand just how big it is when we're talking the tr- the T number here. Oh, it's so big. But yes, there 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 is um, there is this uh, provision in the bill that would expand Obamacare, uh, otherwise known as the Affordable Care Act. Uh, of course, that has nothing to do with that pandemic. Um, and it, uh, it, it's also questionable about whether or not it would actually increase the availability of health insurance coverage to, to those who, who might need it. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's perhaps not surprising. Obviously, President Biden was there uh, hand in hand with, uh, with President Obama when Obamacare was passed. So uh, he certainly supports that. Um, I think uh, you know, it's, it's encouraging that he's not moving more aggressively towards something like the public option or, or more government-run health care. But, um, but yes, this is definitely an example of the kind of partisan inclusion in the bill that I think uh, troubles many of the, the Republicans who decided to vote against it as much as they'd like to provide some support and relief. Uh, they're not going to uh, cast their vote in favor of a, uh, of a of a provision like this, and and essentially what it does is that it would it would reduce um, an Obamacare enrollee's monthly premium to to, to zero dollars, um, and uh, and and the government would obviously have to uh, to pick up the tab um, for for that, and so. I think that um, you know it may, maybe um, a well-meaning effort on those who, who wrote the provision, but not necessarily the, the, the best approach uh, for for how I think we would see uh, healthcare uh, healthcare reform working. Is it more likely to help the people who are, who are already in the program, and not so much signing uh, up new people? Uh, yeah, I think that um, that's that's a good way to put it. Um, I think it would it would definitely benefit those who are are in Obamacare and have insurance already. Um, and essentially, you know, in addition to the direct payment, I mean, it's just another way to to help reduce the the expenses of those who are, are also already part of the Obamacare uh, insurance uh, program. So yes, uh, that's, um, that's certainly one way to look at it. And, and I think it's, it's another example of, of, you know, Oftentimes, when you have these these large bills, um, there's a lot of people who have their own agenda who want to um, insert uh, certain provisions that uh, you know that that, that maybe um, uh, 
better off as a standalone measure than would be debated. I don't know what the best way to put it is, Bill. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's the same way. You 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 know, if your listeners recall, when we had our the first Obamacare or when we had the first COVID relief package, you know, there were a whole number of provisions in that bill that would have uh, mandated like mail in and voting for all of the states, like and things that you know tangentially could have been related to the pandemic, but really shouldn't have been in in the bill. And and fortunately, um, because you know. Donald Trump was was president and, and held a firm line, th- those provisions were excluded. I think what you're seeing now is a lot of these ultimately will, by the narrowest of margins, probably make it into law. Um, but we still have a ways to we still have a little ways to go. Um, the Senate is going to have to make some changes to the bill because the parliamentarian of the Senate said there can't be a $15 minimum wage. That will mean that they'll have to strip that language from the bill. It'll mean it'll have to go back to a, a joint House and Senate conference committee that works out the differences. Um, so there's a chance that some of this could be removed, but uh, but we'll keep a close eye on it and, uh, and and monitor that progress. Rob, explain what the HR1 for the People Act is, and is it partisan or nonpartisan? Well, it, it, it is certainly partisan. It's another example of, of legislation that's made its way through the U.S. House um, first in, in 2019. And, and again, uh, this week, it'll be on the floor for a vote tomorrow. Uh, it is very much um, a bill that, uh, that was written by Democrats, I think, to, to benefit uh, Democrats. And that um, would do so in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, it would what, what what we would describe as federalizing our elections. Um, elections since our founding have traditionally been run at a local and state level. That's uh, that's just the way that our founders set up set up the country, and I think that they they did so in a way that has benefited all of us um, for for as long as uh, we've existed. It's the United States of America. Uh, but what this uh, what this bill, uh, which is called uh, ironically for the People Act, uh, which is is anything for the people, it's for the politicians. <laughs> if anything, it's going to protect the incumbents. It's going to increase opportunities for for election fraud. Uh, it's going to um, er- erode some of our First Amendment protections, and uh, and I think that it's it also ignores. Uh, the advice that uh, that former President Jimmy Carter, uh, former Secretary of State James Baker, and their uh, election reform commission made, which is that you should have voter ID. Um, this bill really guts uh, voter ID laws uh, across this country, which we know many states have implemented and are, are quite popular. Uh, for all of the things you need to show an ID for today, it seems that it's uh, just common sense to show one when you show up to vote. It absolutely does. I don't quite understand why that is not why that's such a big deal? Uh, I, I don't I don't understand either because again, when you have former President Jimmy Carter, <laughs> a Democrat yeah. who's who's hardly somebody. Uh, I mean, he's he is uh, he's pretty hardcore in his beliefs, coming out and supporting something like photo ID uh, for voting. I think that it only. Um, re- gives us more confidence in our electoral process. And we know uh, right now that it's important to restore that confidence because you had a situation uh, both in 2016 when when a lot of Democrats uh, questioned the outcome of the election. And now you have a situation in 2020, 2021, where Republicans are questioning the outcome. And I think we can, we have to do everything we can to restore trust in, in our elections. Unfortunately, I don't think H.R. 1 is doing that because it's probably going to pass on a party line vote um, it's not going to get uh, that that bipartisan appeal, 
And uh, and ultimately, I, I don't think that it'll have the votes in the Senate to make it through. But uh, but every time it comes up, it's definitely uh, a concern. And uh, you're seeing more and more of this strictly partisan legislation making its way through. Um, and that's not to say that Republicans don't do it as well, Bill. But I mean, I just think the flurry that's happening in the last couple of months has probably surprised the American people, particularly at a time when uh, President Biden has said that he wants to govern from the center. He wants to work with Republicans. And you're not seeing a whole lot of that happening so far. Mm-hmm. Rob, when Planned Parenthood released their annual report, what did we learn? Well, we uh, we learned a few important things. First of all, they're prov- providing fewer breast screenings, wellness exams. Uh, and what are they doing, Bill? Uh, more abortion and uh, and, a, and a real dedication to uh, offering uh, services to to those who are transgender. And uh, let's um, let's just keep something in mind. I mean, Planned Parenthood is a multi million dollar a year organization uh, that's heavily involved in our elections. Um, they uh, they have a PAC that is is really active and. Although the report will sometimes um, put, uh, you know, abortion and some of those other controversial issues to the side, uh, they're an organization that has certainly uh, put uh, their emphasis on that. And I think that they're going to exert that that influence probably even more so with uh, with the current uh, Congress and and administration. Um, Just to give you some raw numbers. and and this is this is the report from 2019 and 2020. So it, it start it, it covers the period from late 2018 to, uh, to to the end of September in 2019. 354,871 abortions. Um, just a wow. tremendous number of lives that were taken from us uh, far too soon. Uh, that number is an increase from the previous year, and uh, and you know. By comparison, Bill, mm-hmm. again, three, over 350,000 abortions, mm-hmm. just 2,667 adoption referrals, uh, which is a significant decline, uh, about half of what they did in the previous year. So if, you, if only Planned Parenthood was uh, devoting as much time to doing adoption referrals, think about all of the, the young children we would have with us today. And it just breaks my heart uh, to, see, to see those numbers. And uh, that, it's some, that in some cases, they're celebrated. I think it's just sickening that some people would do that. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of minutes left, Rob. Will Governor Andrew Cuomo survive the storm he's in? Well, as a as a native New Yorker, uh, you know it's a, certainly a story that I've I've been watching closely. I'll say say one thing about this. I'm glad that uh, I, I I think that you know I give a lot of credit to the women who are coming forward and telling their stories. I know particularly w- with somebody like Andrew Cuomo, who's known for you know his uh, his tough demeanor and brass knuckles. Like it's not that you know they have to fear for their safety probably to do so and and I applaud them for for sharing their stories and having the courage to do so but at the same time bill I mean we've been sounding the alarm on what Cuomo's been doing and and his policies uh for for long-term care and elderly facilities in New York uh for for about a year now and and I think it's a shame that more and more people didn't uh gravitate toward that earlier because it was truly a scandal. His own attorney general pointed it out, a member of the Democratic Party. And I think that uh that's uh that's another area that we can't lose sight of as somebody who still has uh, a ninety nine year old great aunt in uh, in a long term <laughs> care facility in New York. Uh we're grateful that they've uh they've been able to keep COVID out of that uh, that facility and she's remained safe. But um, but it's uh, it's certainly something that weighs on my mind quite heavily. Yeah, that's I appreciate, Rob, you doing the show. As always, look forward to our conversations and thank you for um, being on the show today. Thank you, Bill. Yep. Good Rob, to talk to you. Thank you. Rob Louis has been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. Take a little break. When we come back, I'll be joined by Dr. Greg Borgon. That's all ahead. 
love to study scripture. I love it, love it, love it. And here's a passage out of Hebrews chapter 6 in verses 4 to 6. It states, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting subjecting him to public disgrace. That is a verse we're going to talk to and process with Dr. Greg Borgon. He is president and founder of Heart of a Warrior uh, Ministries. You go to heartofawarrior.org. Greg, welcome today. Oh, it's good to be with you again, Bill. Well, I hear you might be a little under the weather today. Yeah, I, I, we finally, after spending hours on the phone, got an appointment to get our vaccination. So both my wife and I got our first vaccination yesterday. And um, so I'm a little sore, a little feverish, a little lethargic, yeah. but uh, I'll survive. I'm Good. just glad to get it out of the way. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of people have said that that has been what's happened when they've gotten the, the uh, vaccine. So I know you'll be better tomorrow. Yeah. As long as I don't start growing a third arm, I'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's talk about this, uh, this very difficult passage to understand. Yeah, one thing I want to alert the audience to right from the beginning, so they're not concerned, it does not teach that we can lose our salvation. You read the passage, what a relief. and it, <laughs> it brings up several questions that might be in the listeners' minds, and certainly was in mine as I prepared for this. Does the passage refer to Christians who received the gift of salvation and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Or... Does the passage refer to those who have professed to be Christians but have not actually been saved? If Christians then, is it possible, as the passage suggests, to lose one's salvation by denying Christ? Here's another question it raises for me. If not Christians, can a person come so close as to experientially, uh, externally, or eternally uh, embrace the benefits reserved for those who experienced internal conversion and regeneration, turn away and abandon the Savior and degenerate into some state uh, from which they can't be saved. And the final question it raises for me, Bill, is does the passage even deal with eternal security at all? We started at the beginning by saying we will not lose our salvation, and I'll hopefully prove that. So these are a few of the perplexing uh, questions that face us as we attempt to exegete or interpret the the verses before us. Now, there are two valid ways of looking at these verses. I would like to also propose a third one that was based on a research paper I did, Bill, when I was in seminary back in 1983. I took this difficult passage, um, I scoured it in the Greek, and uh, did a lot of research on it, and so came to a third possible interpretation, but we'll wait till the end for that. Okay. Is that okay with you? That's fine with me. All right, let's go to the first interpretation of this passage. One interpretation holds that this passage is written not about Christians, but about unbelievers who are convinced of the basic truths of the gospel, but haven't placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. 
they're intellectually persuaded, in other words, Bill, but they're spiritually uncommitted. So according to this interpretation, the phrase once enlightened refers to some level of instruction in biblical truth. So in other words, enlightened literally means to bring the light or to give light or to make plain. So in, in Hebrews 6, 4, it means to give understanding um, to, uh, uh, to, to the hearer. So in other words, then, uh, this passage right now saying once enlightened, they had all the information they really needed to make a decision. Mm-hmm. However, understanding the words of Scripture is not the same as being regenerated. And as you know, regeneration is means renewed, restored, revived, which happens at the very moment of conversion, and it's done by the Holy Spirit. So, um, moving along here, the people described in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 are of this latter group, that is, unbelievers who've been exposed to God's redemptive truth and perhaps had made some profession of faith, but who have not exercised genuine saving faith. Now, what we mean by that is genuine saving faith. There's a series, uh, Bill, of tests in 1 John that we can uh, examine ourselves uh, in our faith. As we look at them, we need to remember that no one will perfectly fulfill all of them all of the time, but they should reveal a consistent trend that characterizes our lives as we grow in grace. So genuine saving faith has these following characteristics. Number one, and I have passages for all of these. We won't have time to go into the passages, but they all have biblical references to them. Number one, do you enjoy having fellowship with Christ and his redeemed people? Number two, would people say you walk in the light or you walk in the darkness? Uh, Three, do you admit and confess your sin? Four, are you obedient to God's word? Five, do you uh, does your life indicate your uh, you love God rather than the world? Six, is your life characterized by doing what's right? Seven, do you seek to maintain a pure life? Eight, do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Um, note this refers not to not continuing in sin as a way of life, not a total absence from it. Uh, absence from it. Number nine, do you demonstrate love for other Christians? Ten. Do you walk the walk versus just talking the talk? And 11, do you maintain a clear conscience? And finally, 12, do you experience victory in your Christian walk? Now, none of us, Bill, are going to satisfy all of that criteria, but a majority of it should be evident. In other words, there should be fruit that's seen befitting the repentance that we actually declare. So that's what we mean by genuine same faith. So the point, again, is the people described in this passage are uh, unbelievers who've been exposed to God's redemptive truth and perhaps have made a profession of faith, but have not exercised genuine saving faith, as I've just described. So this interpretation also sees the phrase, tasted the heavenly gift. Now, tasted literally means to taste or to get a taste or to experience. In Hebrews 6, 4, for instance, it means to experience the heavenly gift but not possess it. So that's what we mean by tasting. So the, um, the brief experience with heavenly gift is not seen as equivalent to salvation. Rather, it's likened to a second and third soils in Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 23, which describes people who receive the truth of the gospel but aren't truly saved. Finally, this interpretation sees the falling away which is Hebrews 6, 6, 
And this, what we mean by falling away, literally means to go astray, to abandon a formal relationship or association. So in the passage, it means that the individuals who have associated with Christians finally rejected Christ after receiving full knowledge and experiencing life uh, with Christians. So that's what we mean by falling away. So it's a reference to those who've tasted it but haven't come all the way to faith, falling away from even the revelation they've been given. So the tasting of truth is not enough to keep them falling away from it. They must come all the way to Christ in complete repentance and faith. Otherwise, they, in effect, re-crucify Christ and treat him contemptuously. So those who sin against Christ in such a way have no hope of restoration or forgiveness because they reject him with full knowledge and conscious experience. They have concluded that Jesus should have been crucified, and they stand with his enemies. It's impossible to renew such to repent. So uh, the other interpretation holds that this passage is written about Christians. This is the, the second one, Bill, interpret, the second interpretation. Okay. Uh, do you have any questions about the first one that I've just described? Well, one thing popped up when you said that they tasted of the heavenly gift but didn't possess it. I wasn't sure what mm-hmm. to make of that. You know, taste yeah, and see that the Lord is good. Yeah. So does that yeah. mean I've tasted it but haven't possessed it? So I wasn't quite sure if I understood yeah. that. It's like tasting food but not consuming it. So okay. in other words, you can taste the salvation, but you haven't consumed okay. uh, the process. It's not a part of you internally. So you've externally had some touch of experience with it or you've tasted it, but you haven't consumed it. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you, Greg. So interpretation number two. So at least in interpretation number one, the position of that interpretation is they were never saved to begin with. Okay. Interpretation number two. This second interpretation is based on an alternate translation. Um, found. Uh, well, let me see what I wanted to say here. Yeah, it's it's based on an alternate uh, foundation. So in other words. It's found in the King James Version and a few others in which Hebrews 6, 6 begins with the phrase, if they fall away, with the key word being if. Now, according to this view, the writer of Hebrews is setting up a hypothetical if a Christian were to fall away. The point being made is that it would be impossible if a Christian falls away to renew salvation. That's because Christ died once for sin and, and the sacrifice is sufficient and there's no hope at all. So, In this view, the passage presents an argument based on a false premise, that a true Christian, a true Christian, one who has a renewing faith, can fall away and follows it to its senseless conclusion that Jesus would have to be sacrificed again and again. So the absurdity of the conclusion points up the impossibility of the original assumption. This this reasoning is called uh, reductio ad absurdum in which a premise is disproved by showing that it logically leads to an absurdity. So the weakness of this view is that the Greek text, and you got this, this is important, Bill, that the Greek text does not contain a word equivalent to the English if. Mm. So the reason why it was put in by translators is to help the passage flow, but it isn't in the original text. Wow. And so if is not there. Yeah, and if that was true, that you could lose your salvation, churches would be busy every weekend trying to help people get resaved. Oh, yeah, they'd have a long line for resaving <laughs> and, a, and a shorter line for saving for the first time, right, I guess. Right, right. Well, 
Anyway, both of these interpretations support the security of the believer in Christ. So the first interpretation, which has a stronger textual basis, actually, presents unbelievers rejecting Christ and thereby losing their chance of salvation. The second, weaker interpretation presents the very idea of believers losing salvation as impossible, neither um, of which is true. And when we talked about renewing our, uh, our faith or the, the phrase that uh, we talked about, genuine saving faith, my wife is always fond of saying that you can't backslide until you first front slid. <laughs> <laughs> So in other words, if there's no indication as identified by these, uh, any of these 12 characteristics in the life of somebody professing to be a Christian, we can conclude that there's a good chance that they aren't saved at all. Now, no one knows absolutely for sure, Bill. It's only God knows uh, and the Holy Spirit who's working in the soul of that individual. But we're told not to judge them, which means to be the uh, arbitrator in the court Uh, in the disciplinarian, but we are called as Christians to be judging, that is, to evaluating and understanding what the Word of God has to say. So um, in in that particular case, then, what we're looking at is these two first interpretations are the ones that are most uh, dominantly presented. Uh, The first one, of course, is that they come so close, Mm -hmm. uh, but not consuming, as we said. And the second one, is they were never, uh, you know, they could fall away, and and they could lose their salvation. So neither of these, in my mind, are adequate. The first one is probably um, the most justifiable, but I do have a third interpretation, Bill. And I think we're going to address that one after the break. Dr. Greg, okay. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and we're chatting about a very interesting passage out of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Can we lose our salvation? We'll be right back. Dr. Greg Borgon, we're talking about Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, can we lose our salvation? And we made it clear in the beginning that you cannot lose your salvation, which is comforting. Now we've gone through interpretation 1 and 2, and now we're up to number 3, which is one you've done quite a bit of uh, study on, Greg. I'm anxious to hear what, yeah. it, what it is. Well, be, before we actually touch on that, Bill, I think it's good to go back to the passage and and um, highlight a couple of more of the words that are in there that might escape um, the listener's understanding until you dig down into them. Okay. The first one that says it is, it is impossible for those. So what does that really mean? We think we know what impossible means, but what it literally means is without power or no power. So in Hebrews 6, 4, it means that there's no power or capability to return to the knowledge of Christ and share in Christ's life uh, with Christians again. Some scholars have said that if you're of that first interpretation, it addresses the fact that once somebody ultimately rejects with their general and special revelation that they've received, Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and God knows at, at what point there's no return, they have committed what's called the unpardonable sin. Um, grieving the Holy Spirit, they committed the unpardonable sin which is their ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ. 
and only God knows once they cross that boundary. So impossible, that's what impossible means. Now, there's a couple of other words. Um, enlightened, for instance, literally means to bring to light or to give light or to make plain. So in Hebrews 6, 4, it means to give understanding. And then we come to the word tasted, which literally means to taste or get a taste or to experience. So again, in Hebrews 6, 4, it means to experience the heavenly gift, but not to possess it or consume it. Um, falling away is another phrase used in the passage. It literally means to go astray, to abandon a former relationship or association. So in Hebrews 6, 6, it means that the individuals who have associated with Christians finally rejected Christ after receiving full knowledge and experience in life with Christians, as we talked about earlier. Partakers in some translations literally means companions or share in or partners. So in Hebrews 6, 4, again, it means to share in the experience or witness the power of the Holy Spirit. But again, reassuring our audience, you cannot lose your salvation. Now, many passages make it abundantly clear that salvation is everlasting. Let me just go through a couple of them. John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never, and they've stressed on never, perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In Romans 8, 35 and and uh, verses 38 and 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things come to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Philippians 1, 6, uh, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So it doesn't ever stop. Mm-hmm. Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And finally, in First Peter 1, 4 and 5, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Imperishable is the stress. Now, the last thing I want to say about the assurance piece is that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we have this further assurance. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed that as you trusted in, relied upon, and clung to him, were sealed, interesting word, mm-hmm. with the promised Holy Spirit, who is guarantee of our, a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, what it means to um, seal The Holy Spirit is referring to it as the deposit or the seal or the earnest in the hearts of Christians. So the Holy Spirit is God's seal on his people. His claim on us, as he claims us as his very own, the Greek word translated earnest in some of the translations in this passage means a pledge that is part of the purchase money or property given in advance of security for the rest. So the gift of the Spirit to believers is a down payment on our heavenly inheritance, which Christ promised us and secured for us at the cross. It's because the Spirit has sealed us that we're assured of our salvation. No one can break that seal of God, Bill. Amen. Okay, let's go into the third interpretation. What I'd like to do is just read my conclusion. The actual research paper was, I think it is 15 pages long. I'm not going to read all 15 pages. I'm just going to read you the conclusion. Is that okay with you, Bill? Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Okay, so here's the third interpretation, the one to which I um, agree with fully. Um, prior to, and this is taken directly from the research paper now, 
Prior to investigating in greater depth, I, that was me, firmly held to the theory that this passage dealt primarily with those professing Christians who had come as close uh, as any could to receiving Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, but without consummating the act. They had tasted but not indulged. They had experienced the external but not the internal. In the light of Scripture in general, there was no doubt in my mind that once saved, always saved. That grounded fact did not permit me to see any other solution to this perplexing and confusing passage. But this problem text, in my view, could be explained in only two ways. Either they were not Christians at all, which is the first interpretation we talked about, or they were there, uh, they were, and therefore they could lose their salvation by apostatizing, which is the second interpretation we talked about. Now, salvation is a process and not a one-time event. Conversion, on the other hand, is a one-time event that launches the salvation experience. We taste at first, and then we indulge. Tasting is not rejecting. Taste and see that the Lord is good. They tasted the heavenly gift and the goodness of the Word of God in the sense that they've accepted and tested it and found it to be good. So in like manner, to partake or share in the Holy Spirit means to enjoy fully. These were men and women then, as one commentator asserts, quote, who had experienced the joys of salvation, the fellowship of the Spirit, completely and intimately, the nourishment and satisfaction of the Word, either written or preached, and the confirmation and reinforcement of the supernatural. These experiences are the normal privileges and constituents of regeneration. Now, I go on with my conclusion. Exegetical wizardry cannot explain away with complete satisfaction the fact that these are Christians in the true sense of the word. Why would the author need to cite this situation to those he was confident uh, of better things? What would be the purpose if not to warn them against such a possibility? The letter to Hebrews, we recall, is addressed to Hebrew Christians, those who remained faithful to their call and had yet not yet lapsed back into Judaism. So he's addressing Christians. That being the case, how do we explain the impossibility of those who fall away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, the author of the passage says, they crucify repeatedly the Son of God all over again and subject him to public disgrace. In the first place, the author, it is noted, does not say it is impossible to be brought back to forgiveness. He says it's impossible to be brought back to repentance. Mm. So forgiveness is still available. Repentance is impossible only if one continues by their actions and disobedience to crucify the Son of God all over again. A better translation of the text would read, it is impossible if they fall away to be brought back to repentance while to their loss they are crucifying Christ again. So when a person is in rebellion against God, he does not want to repent. Only as he recognizes his need and quits crucifying the Son of God by his open rebellion, which serves only to subject him to public disgrace, will he repent and be restored. The prodigal son is an example of how far someone can go in their rebellion before he repents. It should be remembered that he squandered his inheritance. Christians in rebellion also, Bill, squander their inheritance, but even if we taste our blessings— Uh, or we waste our blessings, that is, God will restore us to fellowship when we repent. So in conclusion, then, 
This falling away is more than a simple backsliding of a feeble Christian. It's a falling away that begins with a lack of growth or stagnation initially and advances to atrophy, that it shrinks. There is a point at which continual decline is irreversible. Its end is in no man's land, the result of falling back again into the pattern of sinful degradation from which uh, they were rescued at one time. It is possible for a Christian who once enjoyed victory to now taste defeat. It's possible for a Christian to become dull and desensitized to the point of impotence in spiritual matters. Um, He no longer hears the still, small voice of God, nor does he respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. His is a carnal existence. That point of no return is known only by the Lord. Until that point is reached, his restoration of fellowship with God in this life is still possible, but not until he repents anew. Yeah, I hate to say it, but we're out of time. Oh my word! Yeah. Oh, just we're getting to the the best passage. <laughs> well, well, I will I will give the uh, my listeners the last bit of it in the top of this of the next hour. Okay, I'm so sorry for going over, Bill. No, that's okay. It's a it's a, it's a tremendous study, and I want it to be thorough. So I don't mean to to uh, cut you off, but I'm just no, up against okay. a break. So I will deliver the final uh, paragraph at the top of the next hour. So, Greg, thank you so much, uh, and I look forward to our next conversation. All right. Take care, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, I'll be uh, joined with uh, Jeff Verdorn, who's going to talk about our study of end times. All next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.